You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, we're going to continue our series, God Redeems. We've been in the book for quite a while. It's been sweet, it's been great, and in this section of the book, we're actually breaking down what it means to practically love other people and love God. Uh, That's sort of the formation of the order. We love God and we love other people. Our influence, our relationship with God affects our relationship with other people. And so last week, we actually looked at and covered uh, the the end of chapter 20, uh, where Moses was giving the people a description of how they should worship with altar worship. Uh, and what it looked like and how God wanted an order of their worship. We're in this next section, Exodus chapter 21 through 23, verse 19. That's right, about two and a half chapters. God is giving the nation a set of rules to follow to help them practically apply now the Ten Commandments to love other people. I think it's interesting how God's like, yeah, just love me with these four verses, super easy. And then he's like, but you got to play it out with these couple of chapters now. Uh, oftentimes, I think in our Western society, it's great for us to just love God. Like me and, me and Jesus, man, we're good. And then Jesus is like, bet you need to love the church and hypocrites and people and sinners and do this. And we're like, ah, that's harder. So now we're getting into the deep stuff of actually loving people, of letting our relationship with God influence others and loving our neighbor as ourself. I started to book, read a book this um, week uh, as I tried to pour into myself, especially on my Sabbath day, I read about half the book by Tim Chester. It's called How You Can Change. Uh, and he says this quote, The Christian life is not that complicated as we sometimes make it. Only two commands matter, to love God and others. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31. Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10. Everything else is there simply to flesh out what this love involves. Your faith needs to flesh out. Your faith needs to have works. And what this section of Exodus is going to do through these ordinances or rules is to help us flesh out what it actually meant to love other people. And there's going to be a big emphasis, a practical application of the Ten Commandments. And this is why these rules in this section is super long. Because life is complicated. Can, can I get an Amen. There are different applications for so many different things. And this is why we praise God. The spirit of God is inside of us to help us apply the word of God. Because if there was a list of rules for every single thing, it would just be overwhelming. And we even get overwhelmed by a summary of a little bit shorter list of the real list. Exodus chapter 21 verse 1 says this. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. In this section is a long list of rules, which at first glance, it seems a lot of pointless rules that don't apply to us. It's a little bit of boring, but let us not forget God's heart when we know the application of his truth. He's giving out these rules because he desires for us to worship in the everyday stuff of life, like we talked about last week. And he wants us to love other people. One commentator uh, about this section said this, uh, the purpose of this section 
this Exodus 21 through 23, this lump sum of Levitical law was to provide a basis for teaching that the nature of divine justice by studying specific case of application of God's will uh, in concrete situations, the reader of the Pentateuch uh, could learn the basic principles undergirding the covenant relationship. Whereas the Ten Commandments provide a general statement of the basic principles of justice which God demanded of his people, the examples selected here further demonstrate how these principles or ideals were to be applied to real life situations. It's a long quote. I think I just read it just so you all pity me as, I, as you know. This is the stuff I'm reading, okay? Because I need to sum this up in a message and all the stuff that you read and you get so bored and you're like, what did this guy just say? What is he saying? And how are these people in the divine justice and blah, but it does matter because it shows us boiling down. God cares about people. I mean, it's sometimes frustrating that God cares about other people, but we sure accept and love that God loves people like us, right? But what if we're his people, his children? Now he wants us to apply that goodness to others. And so God wanted his people to have order, to give them these rules, these long lists, because he's a kind God and he gave them real life examples. I love that. The very end of it starts making sense. Where to be applied to real life situations. So we're going to cover 42 ordinances that he's giving the nation of Israel as a summary of the Levitical law, which is actually 613 ordinances or rules. You're welcome that we're not covering that for the next year and a half. But it is important for us to go. And this section, these 42 ordinances or this chapter, the big idea is this. They're going to be covering human rights. The right of a human. How do we interact with humans? How do we practically love them? The simpler commentary or sub, sub, uh, subsequently of the stuff I'm reading, Tony Murta says this. Here we see a just and compassionate God who expects his people to live before him in humility and with justice and mercy towards others. Or like the great prophet Micah could sum it up in this way, Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So I'm calling this message Ordinances. Ordinances, part one. Part one. Uh, and today, there's going to be many different sections. This, the way that these chapters are broken down, they are on different sections. And tonight, we're going to be talking about slavery. Slavery. So, let's read it and get into it. Chapter 21, verses uh, 1 through 11. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, well, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or a door, the doorpost and his master shall, shall bore his ear uh, through with a owl and he shall, uh, his slave, 
it shall be his slave forever. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. He is des- uh, he, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or maternal rights. As, uh, and if he does not and if he does not do those three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Lord, help us and let us pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that we can study your word. Uh, clearly, Lord, when it comes to these type of texts, um, the application is somewhat hard. It's distinct. It's far off. But we know, Lord, that you were writing for a specific group of people, for a specific situation. And we just pray, God, that we would understand and we would learn and understand not only the meaning, but the context, the application. Spirit of God, let us see more of Jesus, even in this text, about slavery, about servants, about, God, just rules and regulations. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you, God, how you can speak to your people and we can open up any section of the word of God and be edified and be blessed. And so we pray that you would anoint my words, that you would bless this message and God, that you would speak to your people, not only here in the room, but those that are listening online and those that will just listen to this message and take heed of it. God, we love you. We worship you through the study of your word and specifically now with our minds as it will take some deep work and thought to think about what all this means and what you were saying. But we love you, Lord, and we trust you. And so we just pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we look to your word once again through this section. It's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Slavery. Did you know that the Bible addresses slavery? Slaves, servitude. Uh, It is a real issue that the Bible addresses. And in this first section, in verse two through six, we first see the rights of, of Hebrew servants. That's what this section is talking about and addressing. I'm going to do a lot more explanation in these rulings and rules and stuff like that because I feel like if you don't have context and know what's going on, uh, you won't be able to even understand it or apply it. So bear with me, but it is important that we have teaching and we understand these verses because many people twist these type of verses and actually play against Christianity or the faith to actually say, well, look, the Bible includes slavery. Yes, it does. And we're going to find out what it actually means. One commentator said the selective laws, this summary of Exodus, were probably stated because of how they related to Israel's prior situation in Egypt. Let's not forget that the, that the Israelites were actually slaves themselves. In the context of the book, God had just set them free and God is now starting with the rules with the issue of slavery because that was their culture and that was the trap that they would be going into trying to be like culture. But there's something uniquely different about these rules and all the other cultural rules. They're focusing on the servant or the slave and not the master. They're focusing on giving the servant rights and the way that they're treated and not as pieces of property or something malice. This was not the normal when you talked about servants and slaves in that time, but God wanted to make sure that servants were not mistreated because remember, the Israelites were mistreated 
And the Bible says God heard their cries and acted because he's compassionate for people. So it's often said that hurt people hurt people. You ever know that word? If you go through a situation, you're hurt by something, you end up actually having that affect your life and you hurt people. The Israelites in their culture had just gone through massive grief, massive hurt by the Egyptians. They were slaves for generations. And what they were going to have a tendency is fall into the flesh of how they would actually treat other servants now. And God said, no. Let's start with this hard issue. Let's start going right to the, the problem. And let's talk about standards when it comes to slavery and servitude. And so this section starts off with slavery among the Hebrews and how it was not intended to be a permanent condition. I don't know if you noticed this, but the first thing it says in verse 2 is when you buy a male servant uh, or a male Hebrew, he shall serve six years and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. This was, not a, uh, this was not a permanent condition, but something that would be actually be voluntary and be a temporary refuge for people suffering who would actually be bought for a price like a contract so they would actually get out of a destitute place of poverty a destitute place of poverty. Now, this was an agreement between two parties that one would serve another for a certain amount of time uh, to be provided, and it's known as indentured servitude. And I'm going to use this word because I think it actually makes a lot more sense. Some, and even the ESV, it even says, actually it says servant, and there's a little indication of what the Hebrew word is. I don't know how to pronounce that Hebrew word, but I think that we can get indentured servitude to get the idea. Now, one commentator says this, and I want to give you some background of what Scripture says even before the Israelites had this rule. Slavery was permissible in certain situations. So long as slaves were regarded as full members of the community, Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, they received the same rest periods and even holidays as non-slaves. Exodus chapter 23, we're going to see in this text. Also Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, Deuteronomy 12, 12. And it was permitted if they were treated humanely, Exodus 27, verse 7, 26 through 27. This word and this situation is so much different than what we think of slavery as Americans and our history where people were forcefully taken away against their will, this situation is talking about you would actually purchase someone's time and labor to receive benefit, and it would be a temporary, voluntary thing. In fact, cruelty on the part of the owner resulted in immediate freedom. You couldn't just like do what you want, and there are your pieces of property. Look at verse 26 and 27 of that chapter. We're going to go down just a little bit to get this verse. It says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, giving rights to both women and men, which at the time was non-existent, and they destroy it, that eye, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of the tooth. One commentator said this, this made male Hebrew slavery more like a kind of long-term labor 
contract among individuals and less like the kind of permanent exploitation that was characterized slavery in modern times. This is why so much so in verse 5 and 6, I don't know if you noticed this, but it even gives a situation where you as a slave or a servant would like it so much, you would go before God and the community, the doorpost or the gate, and you would pierce an, uh, um, uh, uh, pierce your ear and let people know that you would want to be that master slave for a lifetime because that master or that person was so good and the situation was so great and you loved working for them and they loved you they loved you working for them and you loved working for them that you actually wanted to actually make this a voluntary everyone I am so happy about this servant the word here is what we know as a bond servant you may be familiar with this word bond servant because in the bible it's used a lot by a guy named apostle paul in the New Testament, he would often write language in his greetings saying, I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is, is such a good master. He's such a good Lord. He's given me such a good life that I want to be connected to him and follow him for all of my life. I am a bondservant. This situation is incredible. Wow. A bondservant. So this type of slavery indentured servitude was more like contracts and contractual work. People hired themselves into service of others often because of debt. They worked hard in exchange for room, for board, for food, and for an honest wage. And involuntary slavery, the thing that we think about in our culture, was actually forbidden in this very section in this text. In verse 6, because it had to be a voluntary thing. God wanted the nation not to abuse the vulnerable. Because when you are poor and you can't make it and you have to do anything to survive, God said, that's fine. And you can put yourself in that situation, but not forever. For a temporary, there will be a year of jubilee. You have your debt. You will know, the master will know, and you will know, and you will work for them. But after six years, you will not be forced for labor, and they will forgive your debt. And this is about not taking advantage of poor people or vulnerable people, primarily the poor, as they are in the desperate situation. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12 through 15 says that servants weren't even to leave empty-handed after this arrangement or this type of work. Verse 14 of that chapter 15 says, You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of the winepress, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall bless them. I just want you to start seeing, because when we start seeing the words or we take our cultural context and stick it into Scripture, we can get a totally different view of things. But this is when you buy a a Hebrew servant, or when you become this. This is why this word indentured servitude would have included keeping the family. It's crazy because in verse 2 it says, this is the situation you're going to get in. But unlike American slavery that's separated, that harmed families, God makes it very clear in this situation the sanctity of family and providing stability in this situation. So here's some examples. Verse 3, if he, the servant comes to you and you do this bargain, 
He comes in single, he shall go out single. Meaning this, if it's just him, he's going to be your servant, not his family. You have a vaunt, you're going to go this, he's going to work for you, he's going to come in single and leave out single. You're not going to put this over his head and now abuse his family and his children's rights and he's a piece of property. No, this is the contract you're going to get. And he goes, if he comes in married, then his wife shall go out free for nothing. Meaning, the master couldn't break up the family. This contract had to do with this person and this individual. And if he came out single, he was single. It didn't, didn't uh, interact with the family. If he was married, the master couldn't say, well, you're free, but now you have to pay me for the wife. No, it didn't work that way. Verse 4, it goes on and says, if his master now gives him a wife, say if he's single and his master gives him a wife and she bears his son, uh, him sons and daughters and the wife of her children shall be her masters and he shall go alone. This rule right here was actually protect the wife and the children until the servant had a good job that they could actually pay for a redemption or a dowry for their family to be able to provide for their family because God was wanting to make sure that the wife and the children were always taken care of. Imagine if you go into poor, you're a servant, you work off your debt, but then you have no money. And the guy, the master loves you so much, you build a relationship, you marry his daughter. Does he just want to just say now, okay, do your thing? No, he's going to say, wait until you get a new service. That's why verse five and six says, but if you even like that service and love the family, just stay with him and you're okay. And it's a great part of me, an agreement of that. This was actually to protect the family unit or the servant could even just say, man, I wanna be a part of the family. I wanna keep working for you. And that woman and that children will be taken care of. And God has wanted to make sure the vulnerable, not only the servant, but the family was always taken care of. All this to say, this is all about the rights of the servants. God wanted to protect those that were marginalized, vulnerable, and needed practical helps in the situation. Now, some say, including myself, but God, why didn't you just say no slavery, man? Wouldn't that just been easier? Like, listen, I know your heart and it's all good, but the context that I have in America and being Afri African-American in our history, it would have just been a lot less complicated if you would have just said, don't do slavery, we're good. We wouldn't even have this Bible study right now. It would have been awesome. But God commanded this because he cared about people and that was that, what they were going through in that context right then and there. In fact, this type of system actually helped the person that was desperate, that was in poverty, that had nowhere to go. So God said, I'm going to bear law to bless and to make sure that they're not taken care of or that they are taken care of, not taken advantage of. In fact, it was this form of uh, servitude that God uh, made provision for those that needed it the most. This was so common. I was reading one commentary at the time of Jesus, the first century B.C., uh, it said some estimated that 90% of the free population living in Italy you know, modern Italy. How many of you guys want to go to Italy for vacation right now? Be pretty awesome. They have a history as well. The 90% of the free population living in Italy by the first century of BC had ancestors that had been slaves just like this. 
This is how society actually worked. Giving money or a contract, like you can have this lump of money to get ahead and we will pay you back. Almost like how we are able to buy a house and we take a contract and get debt. Proverbs 22.7 says, the riches rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the debtor. We actually do this a lot in our society. We say, give us a lump of money to make us better and help us so that way we'll pay you back. But they didn't do that with finances of debt, of credit card. They did that in indentured servitude. In fact, the time of Jesus, one commentator said, more than half of the people seen on the streets of the great cities of Rome were, were slaves. And this was the status of the majority of the professionals. People like teachers and doctors, as well as craftsmen, were actually indentured servants. People with craft. And they would say, well, you have a lot of money and you have this farm and I have this skill. Can I work for you? And God's like, sure, you can work for him. But after six years, you're free and you can't take advantage of that situation. You know, sort of like how some people think the rich take advantage of the poor now. If you have a lot of money, you can do a lot of harm as well. And God wanted to make sure that this system within that, that there was rules and there was law. Many people will sign a contract today with their employer for work for an honest wage. They volunteered their time, or you could even say their life, of labor for funds or an honest wage. In fact, so much so in our society, when you get a new job or a contract signed by a client, you know what we actually do? We say congratulations. We literally say congratulate. This would be a happy moment in that culture by someone saying, he bought me. I have work now. Uh, honey, honey, I, I'm going to go work for that farm. And we have security and we're stable for the next six years. In fact, six years is coming up. And I like my master so much and he likes me. This is incredible. It's amazing. We have job security now. I'm going to become a bond servant. And this is a beautiful situation. And I love my life. Makes no sense to us. But yet this is the culture and, and sort of makes sense to us. Because we actually move for our careers. We give our life and our time and we do the same thing. We just have different semantics. We have to pay bills to survive. We have to work and do these things. But this is commonly expected or called differently like the labor force. God doesn't want us to take advantage of the vulnerable and wants us to have a fair wage for both being fair and just as the employer or employee to work hard for us as employees and to be fair and just as the employer. In fact, listen to this from the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 4. Bond servants. There's that word again. Obey in everything those who are your masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ, for the wrongdoer will be, be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master 
in heaven. This is a word to both the bondservant, or you may even say employee or worker, and the master, you may say employer. Employees, you should work hard according to what you agreed to and when you set up your job agreement. There is no space for a Christian to be lazy when it comes to work, especially when it says when your master's not there or when your boss isn't around, you should still work. Work hard unto the Lord, knowing that you agreed upon that. Your boss did not pay you to get on social media or to even make friends. He paid you to do a certain job. And so you should work hard unto the Lord, not just when your boss is around, but unto worship, the Bible says. We can work unto the Lord as worship. Employers, you should not take advantage of employees as it often happens. Because employees are in a desperate situation, we need to pay bills. And so, hey, instead of a fair wage, let's just pay them this minimal amount. I know that they're doing $50 an hour of work. I'm just going to pay them $10 an hour because I can. Oftentimes, employers are tempted in a situation where they make so much profit and they don't actually give enough wages to the laborers and take advantage of the situation. And the Bible says that employers should be just and be fair of their workers and give them an honest wage. So Paul tells these masters to be fair and just in their treatment for those they were over. One commentator said about this section of Scripture, Paul asked masters to make recognition that would undermine the very foundations of slavery. Treat people fairly. That's what this text is about. Don't Get caught in the semantics and how people twist Scripture and thinking through. This text in Colossians, this text in Exodus 21, treat people justly and fairly and with respect. David Guzik, as I was reading his commentary, this is a big quote, but I I think it's actually helpful. He said, through history of Christianity, um, there have been some who use these passages where Paul speaks about slaves and their masters to justify or even promote the practice of slavery. But others have blamed these passages for the practice of slavery. Yet, uh, one could never blame Christianity for slavery. It was a universal practice that predated both Christianity and the Jewish nation. Instead, one should see the abolition of slavery um, came from the Christian people and impulses and not from any other major religion and certainly not from secularism. One last quote about this. I'm just giving you wise people and their cultural context because these are like scholars and PhDs. Warren Wiersbe said this, the Lord didn't want slaves to be looked upon as pieces of property, but as humans made in the image of God are in God's image and deserving of their human rights. And so God gave these rules to help people in the everyday life of stuff, in these real situations, when they had to make these hard decisions. And next, he talks not only to male servants, but female servants, daughters. Let's get a little bit more technical. Because you know who's more vulnerable than a male at this time? A poor male? Would be a poor woman. A daughter. One that you're trying to take care of. In verse 7 through 11, we actually see the daughters. Let's reread it again just for the context and getting closer into it. Uh, verse tw- 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male, 
slaves do. There, there is no, at the sixth year, let the woman just go. Sort of weird. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he, shall, uh, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her maternal rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. I hope I can explain this. Because again, we need context to understand this text and these rules. Because at first glance, it seems hard, like women are treated even worse than men because they aren't set free after six years. But listen, at the time, it was very common for arranged marriage. Aren't you happy that we aren't doing that right now? In that culture, in that time, there's actually arranged marriage and they would actually have a dowry or a payment. And this payment would to protect and care and give rights to a man's daughter. A man was responsible for their home and for not only their wife, but all of their children and especially their daughter. It was the responsibility of a man to take care of his family. And in that culture, women often didn't have very many rights and they would be taken advantage of. So if the husband died or um, something happened to the head of the home or the brothers, the wife and the women would often be destitute and taken advantage of, raped, they would, be mis- uh, they would be misadvantage of. They would just be abused. It would just be a terrible, horrible thing. Let me give you a biblical example of this story and how this takes place. There's a book called Ruth, and it's about this girl who follows after his, her mother-in-law. Ruth and her sister, Orpah, not Oprah, but Or <laughs> Orpah, uh, her sister's husband, they both die. So they're in a desperate situation. They're with Naomi, but Naomi's uh, husband dies. Then she's a mother-in-law, and both of her sons have these two daughters uh, as daughter-in-laws, and they all die. So all of these women, now there are no men in their lives, and they are desperate and destitute, and they love each other. But Naomi, the, the wise woman, the elderly lady, she knows the reality of life. And in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8, she tells them to go away, to go back home. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. You, You could just tell the conviction in her soul as she's telling these two daughter in laws that she loved and cared for, Go back home. Because she knew the harsh reality of a woman and their rights. And so Orpah, she actually does. She goes. The text says in this chapter that there were a lot of tears and they wept and there was bitterness. But then Ruth vows and says, you know what? I love you too much. It's going to hurt too much. I don't care. Your people now are going to be your, my people. Your God, my God. And if we suffer, we're going to suffer together. May God help us. She knew the reality and she chose to stick uh, in, with Naomi knowing it would be a poor and hard life. And this is why the chapter goes on. And Naomi's like, listen, I'm not going to have any more children. I'm too old. Because the culture would actually have a way for this. This is a a, a rule where if your husband died, the younger brother would actually marry you. I know it sounds weird. 
But he would do that to take care of the right of his brother that he loved over the family and the woman and the children and to protect them because he knew that's how crazy society was, that people would mistreat and abuse and take advantage of the women like that. And so there would be a rule. And Naomi's like, I'm not going to have any more sons. And even if I do, it would take years and then you would be old and he wouldn't be able to take care of you. This is a desperate situation. Why do I share that story? Because here in Exodus, we see the protection or a rule of that story for women to be protected because God wanted the most vulnerable people, the ladies, to be physically and emotionally protected. And oftentimes, a poor man, the one that was responsible for his family, could send his daughter to a rich home in hopes that she would be part of the family and they would take responsibility. This has often happened because the father or the poor man would receive not only um, a dowry or a payment, a price for his daughter, but they would have a better chance of a life and a future. And this would also happen because the husband buying the person or the daughter, giving that dowry, would give at a discount price. But rather than taking advantage of the situation of these daughters and the poverty in the situation, God made sure that she was still protected and taken care of, that people wouldn't just buy a whole bunch of daughters at a discount price and now just have slaves. Think about it. If you're desperate, you need money, you need to survive, and you want to take care of, and you have a lot of money, you know the person with a lot of money could do? Just start buying a whole bunch of women and just mistreat them. And to all take care of them, I'll take care of them. The reason why there was a price for a lady is because the father didn't want to make sure that you value my daughter and you can actually provide. And if you don't, I'm going to take that dowry back and redeem her and take her because she is so valuable to me. And so in this text, we actually see women receive protection in three ways. In verse eight, if it didn't work out for the, the family could ransom her back or redeem her, and she could not be sold to foreigners. It was very important that that dowry and that payment was a part of this contractual agreement because if you mistreated the daughter, the husband or the, the father would go back and say, nope, give me my daughter back. You're mistreating her. You said you wanted to take her as a daughter in your own, and you're not. So it would be protecting her. And, and God says, you can't just sell, it, sell her to a foreigner. The second thing we see protection for is this. If she, she became engaged to one of the sons, she was treated as a daughter and not as a slave, not as a servant. She had all the full rights of a daughter and not a servant. You wouldn't mistreat her just because you gave a dowry and you took about the situation. Number three is this. If the engagement ended, the man had the duty for still providing food, clothing, maternal rights for her for treating her right. And verse 11 says that if the man uh, bought the woman and didn't do these things and take care of the woman, she was to be freed immediately to the father's home or the family's home and was not considered a slave. So she, if she was mistreated, she would actually, he would actually have to pay the money first. If you mistreated her, that money would still now be in the hands of the father. They want, they, God wanted to put value on women and make sure that they were taken care of. So in reality, this form of payment actually showed uh, an interest to protect the woman and giving a payment or a dowry in this way. It showed the father that his daughter would be protected and taken care of, 
that this man had, this family had enough money and funds to take care of them, but it also showed the person giving the payment that this woman was valuable. And it shows us today that God cares for women physically and emotionally and their well-being. And he expects men to defend them and to treat them lovely and justly, to treat women with respect and with honor. You see, the Bible says there, there is no place in marriage where abuse is okay. Especially when it comes to husbands, who the Bible says is a stronger vessel physically with their wives. We're told in the New Testament that men are still to be the leaders of their home and still are responsible to protect, to care, to serve, and to love their wives and their families. Again, listen to a New Testament passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 29. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, a washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. May today we still love our wives and our families and those vulnerable in our community. So slavery. In these ordinances, we see the Lord didn't want slaves to be overlooked and give them rights. He didn't want them just to be pieces of property, but as humans made in the image of God, deserving rights. A lot of teaching today, huh? Not really as much applicable stuff because you don't really maybe own slaves. Maybe you aren't a servant of someone. But I was thinking about, man, what would be the application for today? What is the biblical principle in God's heart in this? And this is something I think that's true and applicable for us today. God wants us to treat all people with dignity. This is the heart of the matter it's a crazy rule, and it has to do a lot of commentary and cultural, uh, you know, cultural context and stuff. But dignity means the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. God wants us to honor and respect people. Just because someone is poor or even a different race doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect them. And yet we see this all the time. The human just has a, a tendency to put others down and esteem themselves. All people are valuable and made in the image of God. And too often times, the Bible says we are to not have favoritism and we're to give dignity. Racism has no place in the body of Christ. Favoritism has no place in the body of Christ. We shouldn't look down upon people because they are made in the image of God. We don't value people by how much they have or what name brand clothing they wear. But yet, too often times we do that, don't we? We judge others based off an outward appearance. And we shouldn't take advantage of the poor in these type of situations, but rather love and help the marginalized and the poor. Because the Bible says a lot about that. And we see a lot of Christ in this text. It's interesting because... This word bondservant, we can apply to Jesus. You know, one of the reasons why we're able to love other people is because God loved us so much. 
And there's this beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 that talks about Jesus and how he was a servant. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. We, by the Lord's poverty of emptying himself, the Father sent Jesus to give us life, all people. He left riches of heaven and emptied himself of that to serve us, to bless us. The reason why we're saved is because sin was placed on Jesus and he paid for our debt. We had a great massive debt and we were, the Bible says, slaves to sin. And the enemy had us in darkness, but God snatched us from darkness into his marvelous light. And it was because he took the posture of, hum, uh, of, of humility and became a bondservant of the Father, completely obeying God to the fullest. And he redeemed us. He purchased us, not with money, but by his blood. He shed his blood for us. Now all we have to do is repent, turn to the Lord, and we actually become rich. All spiritual blessings are found in Christ because God cares about all people, even broken people even sinners like you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus as our servant, our great Christ, our savior, humbled himself and paid a debt we could never pay. Notice in this text, there was a rite or a year of jubilee, a, a, a time where they would be freed. Only God can give us freedom. The Bible says that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Slavery is one that is in the Bible. And too often times we think of the peripheral idea of slavery. But what about the slavery of sin? What about the consequences of sin? What about all that God has done to free us? Some of these pictures in the physical were actually to point us to the spiritual and saying that God loves all humankinds and he died for us and he cared for us. And God, is loved, God loves us now and he wants us to love other people. And so instead of being slaves of sin, the Bible says we're to be slaves of righteousness. We're to voluntarily serve other people, knowing that our reward is from the Lord and not from man. So it's not much application, but it's enough to keep us busy. How do we give rights and how do we give dignity to others and help the poor and the marginalized and care and be good employers and good employees and be just and take care of women and our families and just look at people like, Lord, we need help to love them. We can look to the Lord and say, God, give us help, give us strength. And we can see how Jesus loved us. He cares for us. He loves us. May we receive that love and may that relationship with our life, with Jesus and his connection, may that actually implement our faith to love other people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and let's sing a song and take communion together. Lord, we thank you so much that we can come. And Lord, we know that tonight, I know for me, it was, it was difficult to try to communicate, to teach, to come to this text with my own um, cultural context and my own uh, mind, Lord. But I just thank you so much, Lord, that your spirit gives us truth. 
And Lord, that, that your word does speak and we don't want to gloss over hard parts of scripture or things that we have to wrestle with. I thank you so much that we can wrestle with things in scripture, that we can look to these things and, and, and take time to study, to show ourselves approved of being a workmanship of your word and knowing the context and, and putting verses together and seeing your heart. Lord, we know that your heart is you have given us good news that you've given us life by the shedding of your blood and you tell us to remember that. That you've given us dignity, Lord. Even though while we were yet dead in our sin, you, Lord, died for us and you love us. And even today, Lord, even as Christians, you tell us to confess our sins for you are faithful and just to forgive us. Lord, we blow it all the time, even as Christians, and yet you still give us dignity and respect and love us and offer us life. Help us to know your love in a more graceful way especially as we repent, as we fall short of your glory. We know that there is eternal life in the free, by the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. So we look to you tonight. We thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that as, as us as men, that we would be leaders of our home, leaders, Lord, to be able to serve our wives, to protect women, to care for them. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you've given us all responsibility and you want us to walk in your ways. And so God, would you continue to give us application of these texts and these rules? I know a lot easier application and many rules to follow. But God, we just trust you and we thank you. And so may you be glorified and may we remember how you served us as we partake in communion and close our service, looking to you, Jesus, the ultimate servant who humbled himself for us. May you be glorified and honored as we worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.